Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to worship already, to set our hearts and our minds on who you are and what you've done for us. I pray this morning now that as we dig into your word that your Holy Spirit would be near and that um, you would enlighten our hearts to what your word would have to say to us this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it, that it's infallible, that it's instructive for us. Do that for us this morning through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Ben Morrow. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer Church, um, and I'm going to have to begin our sermon with a little bit differently than I normally would. Um, I need to make a little bit of an announcement as well as a prayer request. The announcement is I've been called to be the lead pastor at Miracle Baptist Church in Laverne, Tennessee. Um, so that's going to be beginning for me and my family in October, and it's also that also makes the prayer request obvious, I hope. Please pray for me. <laughs> pray for that church that's about to receive us. Um, pray for my family. Pray for the kingdom. Pray for the work that the Lord wants to do there. Um, this is not an easy thing to leave Redeemer. Um, we've been in Hendersonville. Our family's been here for almost seven years, and we've been a part of Redeemer for about six of those seven years. And so this, you guys are home for us. Um, you are home. And so I'm glad that we're not so far away that this is one of those, hey, see you in heaven goodbyes. This is not one of those. We plan to be around. We plan to see you guys again. It's just one of those things where the Lord is shifting our focus, our ministry focus. And so we believe this is the Lord's will and how he's leading us, and we, we covet your prayers. So thank you very much. Thank you for your support for our family. Thank you for the love that you've showed our family over these years. We treasure you in our hearts, and I just want you to know that. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that to you this morning. So please keep us in your prayers, and we will do the same for you, okay? So now I'm going to make an awkward transition to try to preach after that, <laughs> okay? Jamie has um, allowed me the opportunity to speak with you one more time. We are in Titus chapter 3, and we're continuing our study through the book of Titus. So if you're new to us, we've been going um, verse by verse through the book of Titus, and we're in chapter 3. And um, so Jamie skipped town when it came to chapter 3. That's kind of our running joke. He gave it to me and skipped town. But that's okay. He can pick back up when he gets back. Um, I was already asked this morning, am I going to continue the message on preaching to ladies? Am I going to continue his message from last week? No, I will not. We are moving on. Okay. 
But I do want to pick up here um, and deal with the subject, modeling the attitudes of Christ. So that'll be our theme for this morning in Titus chapter 3, modeling the attitudes of Christ. And if you're one of those, Jamie likes to say, if you want a 30-second soundbite so you can sleep the rest of the sermon, if you want to make a quick note, the main point of the message this morning is that the world will know we are Christ followers when we model his heart in front of them. So in other words, they will see the hope of Christ in us when we live differently, specifically as we maintain a heart of peace and hope and love and joy, even in the middle of a turbulent age. So this call to be different, this call to have a different mindset, a different heart, a different set of passions, it's a theme that I want to pick up on this morning. So first of all, I don't want to take for granted that we just we come to church on a Sunday morning, we automatically remember exactly where we are in our week-to-week study. Maybe, maybe you're new to it. So just to give a wide context before we drill down into the passage this morning, the book of Titus, it's a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a young man named Titus around the early to mid-60s AD, about 30 years after Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, after the Holy Spirit was given to the world and the church age began. So Paul is nearing the end of his ministry, and we we catch him at a point where he's handing off some responsibilities and handing off some things to the next generation, to younger men. He does this with Timothy at the church at Ephesus. He's doing it here with Titus and the church on the island of Crete there in the Mediterranean. So he's handing off some authority. And like many of Paul's letters, this, this letter to Titus was not simply a one-to-one letter. This wasn't a personal letter. This was something that was going to be read before the whole church. So it was given not just to instruct the man Titus, but it was given to specify what the church of Jesus Christ was supposed to look like. What, what are those characteristics, those expectations for the church? And I'll go ahead and add, and this has been preserved for us all the way into the 21st century because God's truth is to continue on generation after generation for us, the church, as well. So these expectations that were given to the church at Crete, they're for us as well. So that's kind of the wide context. We're looking at a letter where Paul is setting some expectations for the leadership of the church and for the church itself. And this morning, I want to pull at a little thread that's found in our passage here, but also throughout the whole book of Titus. And It's possible to miss this, but I think if you hear it and then go look for it, it'll be pretty hard to miss now. It's this idea of modeling the attitudes of Christ as compared to that of the world. There is a constant comparison where Paul is saying, you used to live like this. Don't be that way anymore. Be like this. This used to be your attitude, and this used to be your passion as somebody in the world, but you are called to live differently. There is this pull to be different, to act different, to think differently. And so we pick right back up on that in, in chapter number three. You, you see that he specifies that for elders. There are certain characteristics that you might not find out in your culture, but they are to be found if you're going to Set aside an elder, a leader. Here's some characteristics you need to find. Paul says men, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. He starts digging deep, specifying what he expects to see out of us as people who are different, people who are children of God. So 
This morning, I guess first point number one, I want to talk about keeping a different mindset. Keep a different mindset. In verse number one, he begins by saying, remind them, he says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, let me just give you a little insight here. The way this was originally written in the original language, this wasn't so much an action verb. These aren't action verbs so much as this is to be your disposition. This is your, your tendency now. This is to be how you naturally respond to things. It's, it's passive progressive. Don't worry, there's not gonna be a test on this. But you need to know that Paul is saying, look, this is to be the ongoing default attitude of your heart. When he starts getting specific, be submissive, be obedient, be ready for every good work. He's saying that should be a defining characteristic. If somebody points at you and says, there's a Christian, how do I know that's a Christian? Well, I see these ongoing defining characteristics in that person. It makes them different. I can see that. It's part of who they are. It's, it's their DNA now. Um, it's different than the culture. So keep that in mind when we dig into what, what the expectations are. This isn't just something I'm going to try to do every once in a while. And frankly, Paul doesn't write them to be suggestions for us. This is the expectation that our natural disposition now in Christ is to be reflective of the character of Christ and showing the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's what people should expect to see regularly when we let our hair down, when we're going throughout the week. It should be, we should look differently. So in a world, and again, this is in comparison to the bigger culture and the rest of the world and what's going on. So in a world that is hateful and argumentative and self-absorbed and refuses to recognize authority, that's, that's spelled out here, Paul's letter to Titus tells us that we're to keep a different mindset. So if you look back at chapter 2 for just a minute, one, a good example of this, beginning in verse 11, but into verses 12 through 14, Paul writes, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, there's that word again, we keep hitting on this in the book of Titus, don't we? Fruit of the Spirit, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Now, that's important too. Paul's writing to, he's not just writing generally, he's writing to a specific group of people who are dealing with a specific group of circumstances, just like we now find ourselves in Middle Tennessee in year 2021, we find ourselves in a certain set of circumstances. Circumstances. There's a certain culture that we have to push back against and live in. And even as we live in this world, we are called to reflect the character of Christ in our present age. He goes on, waiting for our blessed hope, verses 13 and 14, the appearing of Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So, 
that thread is there. I was almost tempted. I'm not going to do this to you. I was tempted to just start in Titus 1 and just show you where this thread can just be pulled. You can go back and do that yourself. But as we come into Titus 3 in our text this morning, we see the continuation of that expectation, that mindset, where he says, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for good work for every good work. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy to all. Again, this isn't just a, hey, if, if, you really wanna, if you really wanna do a good job at being a Christian this week, why don't you try one of these things? No, what he's saying is, this is to be what God works in us naturally. This should be the natural outflow of, what, of, of us walking in the Spirit, walking with Christ. The comparison is not speaking evil of anyone, not quarreling with one another, not, and again, he's defining the culture around them, not being foolish or disobedient, led astray, not being slaves to passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. When I start thinking of how I would like to describe some of the characteristics of the culture we have to live in and what cultural discourse sounds like and looks like nowadays, I almost want to think that Paul was spying on 21st century Middle Tennessee. I mean, this sounds pretty descriptive to me. The way people interact with each other. There used to be there used to be some sort of, I don't know, faux respectfulness where people hid behind, hid behind a demeanor of being nice, but in the, in the background they hated one another. And I feel like in the last couple of years, there seems to be more of a stripping away of that where people, yes, people who are hurting, but people are just being blatant about how they feel and they're, 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 they're shooting their angst at each other. Does this sound familiar to you? Am I making this up? Am I living in my own little world here, or does this sound familiar? The last couple of years, with everything that's gone on, this is, it's gotten rough, and the, the conversation has gotten rough. We're not to be part of that. What does it look like to be different, to be a person who's different in our, in our modern culture? Think about what, what Paul's saying here, for instance. He's saying, these people are people who live in malice and envy. It's like they're people of angst. They're people who are angry. They're people who are ready to lash out. They're hated by others and hating one another. I remember, just to get personal for a second, I remember about five and a half years ago, my, my dad passed away. And looking back, I can see how those few months, and even I would say a couple of years after my dad passed away, I was almost, the only way I know how to describe it is I was almost like a guy without skin. I was sensitive. I was like a live wire. I was hurting. I was grieving. And I was grieving. I'm not a person just who's a total stranger to grief, but I was grieving in a way I'd never had to grieve before. And it was, I was sensitive. And i I look back on times when I lashed out on people where they didn't deserve it. It was, just, it was just how I reacted. Why did I react that way? Because I was hurting and because I didn't know how to handle it and I, w- I was working through my grief. We live in a moment now where everybody is under pressure. 
This last couple of years, everybody's been under pressure. And so if, I'm, if I have the natural tendency to be a little snarky, well, in the last couple of years, I'm, that's going to get raised way high, right? Because I'm under the pressure of it. If I have the natural tendency to have grace under fire, that's going to be a little more obvious because the fire is everywhere. God's calling us and God's trying to work the character of Christ in us where we are different than, than we were in our flesh, reacting the way the world works. Yes, it was a natural response for me to lash out at times when I was angry, but it, when I was hurting. I remember a, a, a quote from a former pastor of mine in Bowling Green. His name is Steve Hassung. He liked to say, hurting people hurt people. That's not an excuse, but it is, a, it is a good description. It is a good way of understanding why sometimes you see what you see. Maybe we in love can see when people lash out. There's something behind that. They're not just, there's not just a disposition of anger. Maybe there's, there's hurt going on there. But we live in a time now where everybody's hurting in one way or another. We really are. We really have been. Just think about the different issues the last couple of years that we've had to deal with. I mean, the fact that we, we still have to deal with COVID and we know people with COVID and, and it's really starting to affect people we know or maybe you personally. This is, this is things that, that aren't dealt with in the abstract. They meet us where we are and they, they hurt and it's, there's pressure there. And yet the Lord in our present age, where we find ourselves now is still doing the work of making the character of Christ within us. And we can either go with that or buck against that. The New Testament has a lot to say about our mindset and the way we choose to view things, the way we choose to view the world. We're told to put on the mind of Christ. In other words, there is a way of thinking that isn't natural to the rest of the world. The rest of the world does not understand when you can be joyful even in times of grief. The rest of the world doesn't understand the great hope that we have even when everything just seems to be chaos around us, completely out of our control. To be at peace in those moments is supernatural. It's a work that the Holy Spirit does within us. It's a grace given to us, and we're, we're told to, to take advantage of that to put on the mind of Christ. So we're called to, to keep a different mindset. Secondly, we're called to assume a servant's demeanor. A servant's demeanor. Now this passage here, beginning in verse one, it assumes authority. It assumes authority for every Christian. In other words, we all answer to somebody. We all do. I'm sorry if that's bad news to somebody here. We like, you know, we, we are in Middle Tennessee. We are in don't tread on me land, you know. We like to be independent. We like to know that we're independent. We like to think that we're in control of as much as we can be. We do all answer to somebody. And as Christians, beyond the natural designations of authority that we know we have, government officials, elders and rulers in the church, um, designations within the home, um, laws that are given to us. But besides those natural designations, the New Testament tells us that we're to defer to one another. 
to be servants to one another. The idea is no matter my position and no matter, no matter the other things, I have determined I am going to be your servant and I'm going to act as if I am your servant. There is a, there is a mood, there is talk going around some Christian circles given the politics of our day of being a Christian means that you're supposed to be somebody who defies tyrants. That's, that's the phrase that's getting batted around right now. We're to defy tyrants, okay? Well, I'm not gonna sit, stand here and say there isn't a time where you, where you, there isn't a time to stand up to unjust authority. And I'm also not gonna stand here and say that there's, ever, there's never a time to stand up to abuse of authority. I will say that wisdom knows the difference between an abuse of authority and authority that imposes something we just don't like. And we, let's just be honest, it's very easy for us to tend to want to attribute abuse and evil intent and everything else to authority when they declare something we just don't want to go along with. There is a difference between a moral imperative to disobey authority and simply disobeying authority because I don't feel like obeying it. The Bible makes the distinction, the, the, the tendency of our heart is to be one of deference, to be one ready to submit. Why is that? It's because authority, the Bible tells us, is given to us by God. It's given to us for our protection. That's why it's given. It's given for protection. That's why abuse of authority is such a betrayal because authority is given for protection and someone who abuses authority and uses that advantage for their own gain, they're, they're betraying the very authority, the very reason they were given authority in the first place. But God, the, Bible, the Scripture teaches over and over again that authority is given to us by God. And so our natural tendency should be as Christians, as Christ followers, modeling the life of Christ, walking in the Spirit, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, this argument, this topic gets batted back and forth, and frankly, people take different verses and use them as weapons against each other. Well, what about... What about unjust laws? Well, what about being submissive to authority? Well, what about Peter when he stood up and said, I must, I must obey God rather than man? Well, what about Romans 13? And let me just stop and say this. The Bible was not given to us to use as a weapon. In fact, let me be more specific. The scripture was not given to us to use as a weapon to justify what we already want to do. Okay? What it's given to us for a specific purpose, and we are not the arbiters of what we, want, what we want it to say. The Scripture is given to change us, to change us. The, Spirit, the, the Word is given to us for the purpose of being that two-edged sword, to be that mirror, to be that light, to be that fire that changes us. And we either submit or we don't. I don't think the point of these verses, Romans 13 and Acts chapter 5 and on and on, they're not given to us so that we could have 
a jumping off, a biblical jumping off point so that we could fight the good fight of our point of view. That's the attitude of the culture. The attitude of the culture today is you get in your foxhole with your people and you shoot everything else that moves. You defend your position to the death and everything else is your enemy. That's the attitude of the discourse of our culture today. We're called to be different. Instead of using the scripture as a weapon, why don't we get dig into it and see what it has to say and follow it? So, for instance, I don't, think, I don't think these scriptures were given to be points of debate. The actual point is we're to maintain a servant's attitude. The point of this passage isn't whether or not I should obey my president when he issues a decree. The point of this passage is do I have a general spirit of submissiveness or not? Or do I have a general spirit of defiance? See, Paul gets to the heart. We like to, we like to fight about the issues. Paul wants to dig down to where your heart is, where your heart lives. Do you have a general disposition to defiance? Maybe that's what we're, we're, we're dealing with here. Maybe that's the root point here. Recognize authority and when possible, be submissive to it. Let's look at Peter as an example. Let's, let's not get into using verses against each other. Let's just look at the, the man Peter. Early in his life, the, you're in the Garden of Gethsemane and they come to arrest Jesus. And how does, Jesus, how, how does Peter respond? He takes up a sword, doesn't he? He takes up a sword and cuts the ear off the servant of the high priest. His name is Malchus. The book of John describes that this was Simon Peter who did this. And the version in Matthew, Jesus looks at, at Peter and says, look, this isn't, look, put your sword away. It's not my time. This is not, this is not how you're supposed to react. That's basically what he says. He says, put, put your sword down. Put your sword down. So Peter's natural reaction in that moment was to defend his rights and to defend the rights of Jesus in that moment. These people came to illegally arrest Jesus. Peter responded, don't tread on me. And Jesus said, stop, just stop. You don't understand what's going on here. Acts chapter five, Peter, Peter is the one who defied the magistrates when they said, you are not to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They charged them strongly, do not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And in that context, Peter says, huh, sorry, boys, this is the thing I've been called to do. God is, I've got to obey God rather than man. So I'm going to keep on preaching. You tell me not to preach, God's my authority here. That was Peter who said that. But it was in an obvious, context, an obvious gospel context. He was told, don't preach the gospel. Don't preach Christ anymore. It was that cut and dry. It wasn't a secondary issue. And as an older man, as an older man, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. You can write this reference down if you'd like. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Same guy. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
Now, how do I put to silence the ignorance of foolish people? By doing good. Listen to verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then he says, honor everyone. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Who is the emperor in Peter's day? Nero. Nero. This is the guy who kidnapped Christians put them on stakes, poured pitch on them, lit them on fire, and used them as torches in his garden because he thought it was funny. You talk about taking somebody's rights away. And Peter says, Peter says, honor the emperor. Why? Because the man was worthy of honor? Absolutely not. Because he knew that God lifts up kings and God casts down kings. And that authority comes from him. And that we're called not to get caught up in not get caught up in this constant defiant attitude toward authority, but we're to live calm, peaceable, simple lives before the Lord as servants, as servants. The idea of a servant means somebody who defers to somebody else, somebody who lays down his rights for somebody else. This is, this is the theme we keep coming back to in the scripture. It means I don't belong to myself anymore. I reckon myself as somebody who doesn't belong to me. I'm giving myself for you. I'm gonna be a servant for you. And our ultimate example, we know, the one who laid down his rights to be a servant for others. Write this passage down, Philippians chapter two, verses three through eight, where Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The point is in a world full of defiance and antagonism and tribalism and vitriol, you will be seen as different. You will be noticed as different when you, when they see your love and your joy and your peace and your hope instead of what's common. You're different. Why are you different? This isn't just in the abstract. You're different because you're a person of peace in the middle of the storm. You're a person of joy when everybody else is angry. You're a person who knows how to grieve, but to grieve with hope when everybody else is despairing. Romans chapter 12. I know I'm skipping around. Thank you for your patience. But you can write this down. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Here's the expectation. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the expectation. Here's what that looks like. Verse nine, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Back in our passage in Titus chapter 8, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things that, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The saying is trustworthy. That's a phrase Paul would use um, often. He used it, I think, five different times, four to Timothy, one to Titus. And he would be referring back to a common phrase that the church already knew. They might recite it or sing it together. And he's referring back to verses four through six here. You want to start in verse 3 for context. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Now hear the comparison. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by one another, hated by others and hating one another. Here's the phrase. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the works done by righteousness, but listen how he does this. Listen to the words that are emphasized. But according to his own mercy, it's when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. By his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to to the hope of eternal life. How did he draw us? Did he draw us by beating us over the head with the law and telling us just how awful we are? Or did, we, did he draw us ultimately by his goodness? When we believed, when we first believed, it was because we saw who he was and the hope that we could have in him. We saw the beauty of Christ and we were attracted to his grace. The Bible says it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. He drew us by his goodness. We're saved by his kindness, his mercy. That should be the 
That should be the mark of a Christian. When they look at me, they should, they should not see somebody who's defiant and sarcastic and angry and lashing out. They should see somebody who's, who's, who shows grace, who has joy, who has hope. Listen, folks, those of you who know me especially, I know I'm preaching to myself this morning. I know I am. This is what God wants to work in us, the character of Christ, and this is what it looks like. This is the demeanor of Christ. It's how he described himself, meek and lowly, a servant's mentality, somebody who set his rights aside to give himself to people who didn't even want him at the time. So what expectation was Paul setting for the church here in the book of Titus? He was saying, be deferential and not defiant. Be humble, not privileged. Be kind, not belligerent. Be diligent, not foolish. Be biblical, not cultural. Prefer others above ourselves. Sacrifice for one another. Lay our rights down for one another. Assume a servant's demeanor. And very quickly, before we go, the last point, pursue the good of others. Pursue the good of others. So this point is a lot like the last one, but it's not just done in theory. This is action. This puts feet on it. We're going to move. We're going to pursue the good of others. It's the heart of a servant leading to practical sacrifice for people and good works. This is a thing we keep seeing here in Titus and in Paul's other, work, other letters, the idea of good works. And it's not good works so that God will be pleased with me. It's not good works so that I can be justified. It's not good works so that I can be saved by my works. No, good works are, are to be the natural outflow of the, the Holy Spirit working in me because he is in me because he has changed me, and because he's developing the character of Christ in me that expresses itself to other people in love and in sacrifice. So he says in verse 8, insist on these things. Insist on these things, Titus, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The idea there is to be zealously devoted I, with gritted teeth, am determined to be a person of good works, not just selfishly inclined, but to be looking for the benefit of others. I think about Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Do you remember the supper that he had with his disciples there? Jesus, knowing more than anybody else in that room what was about to happen. Have you ever been in a position where Maybe something big was about to happen. You were about to go into a big meeting or you had to give a big speech or you had to do something and you just had that, you had that nervous mentality like I can't even eat or I can't even think straight until this is over, until I get this behind me. I can't, I can't even function properly. Jesus in this moment knew exactly what was about to happen with him. And even in that moment, he put everything else aside, he put on a towel, and he began to wash the feet of his disciples. And he said to them, and by the way, when I'm gone, please, please do this for each other. It's the thing he wanted them to remember before he left. Put on a towel. So in a, in a world that 
knows nothing about love for others anymore. In a world that's all about me and my selfish ambition and defending my rights and doubling down on what I want and what I believe and that's just how it is. In a world where that is the attitude of our discourse, you will be known differently. There will be a hope seen in you and a joy seen in you when you can, when you can live quietly before the Lord as somebody at peace, not joining that fray. In a world of anger, you're going to be identified as Christians by your love. And that's what we keep coming back to. That's what the scripture says, right? The world will know you by your love for one another. Ultimately, the world's not going to know me as a Christian because of my knowledge or because of my skill in debate or because I've got some snobby version of separation and holiness or because I've got super conservative politics that I let everybody know about, or by standing up and fighting for my rights even, the world's gonna know me as a Christian by my Savior's love that I express. That's what makes you different. It's said that the Apostle John at the end of his life as an old man could be heard just saying to different people, beloved, love one another. Beloved, love one another. It was the thing he kept coming back to. You see it in his letters. Love one another. Love one another. I can tell you that Redeemer Church has loved me and has loved my family. I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful for the love that the Lord has given you guys for one another. And I'm thankful I can be a part of that these years. If I can leave you one thing, it's love one another. Let Godly love, let brotherly love continue. Let the love of God be the thing that defines you. Fight against those things that that would prohibit that. Thank you for loving me. Continue to love one another. Let's pray together. Father, it seems trite, but thank you for the love that you have poured out on us through your son, Jesus. When I stop and think, the things you've done, the things, the way you've shown your love to us, help us to be people who reflect the love of Christ to each other, to others. Let the love of Christ be the thing that defines us. Help us to model the attitude of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.